Well, good morning, church family. Super good to be with you this morning. Why don't you grab your Bibles and go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 9. Somewhere around verse 15 is where we're going to be together in just a few minutes. If you need a copy of God's Word, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. Grab that. That's our gift to you. Uh, we're going to jump right back into Hebrews in just a moment, but it's got to just got to recognize something this morning. Maybe it hit you, it hit me as I'm sitting on the front row just singing with you. Um, it hit me this morning, uh, the reminders that we have even today as we gather of the joy that it is to be part of a faith family. Now Paul talked about it a little bit earlier and this is not scripted, this is just something I observed. Man, it is a joy to be part of a faith family for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is you get to see the faithfulness of God in the lives of one another. So when Anthony's over here leading us this morning, you may or may not know, maybe you're new, three to four months ago, we're not even sure that brother's going to walk again. And we as a church are crying out to God for his faithfulness and his goodness. And man, we've just seen God's faithfulness in so many ways. And I was grateful for his goodness and his faithfulness this morning. God is a faithful God. Amen. Reminded this morning as we're going to witness in the next service the baptism of sweet May. Just the gift that it is to, to be in a church that we see life change week in and week out. God is a faithful God. Just thinking here in a few minutes, we're going to have the joy today of ordaining a brand new elder, watching a young man, Cameron Tucker, in our fellowship that we've seen grow and mature and the calling of God on his life, and we get to recognize that today. Man, that's the faithfulness of God. We're going to, uh, we're, we're going to see new deacons set aside this morning that serve this body faithfully. That's the faithfulness of God. A mission team returned last night late. I don't know if any of them were here. They got back really late from serving in Colorado, the faithfulness of God. We have a mission team in Portugal. We have six of our college students mobilized around the world serving. and Just the faithfulness of God this morning. So I don't know about you, but I'm kind of overwhelmed with his goodness. And I would like for us to just put our hands together and praise our faithful God this morning. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to continue in our verse-by-verse -verse study of this glorious book called Hebrews. I'm going to begin reading verse 15. I'll give you some background context in just a minute. Let's pick it up in verse 15. The Bible says this, Therefore, He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. I want to stop right there for just a second. This statement comes after much that the author of Hebrews has said in the first nine chapters. We've gone deep in the book of Hebrews. And if you're new and you're just getting caught up, I invite you to jump in with us. The book of Hebrews was written to a first century Jewish community to declare the superiority of Jesus Christ above all. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews uniquely bridges God's redemptive activity throughout the Old Testament and throughout redemptive history and then links it to the New Testament and the purpose or the person of Jesus Christ. 
The book of Hebrews uniquely declares and, and, if you will, kind of puts the dots together of all of those pictures and promises and types that we see throughout the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews says, all of those find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Glorious declaration of who Jesus is. So while we read Hebrews, as we've said, with our Old Testaments open, I hope you're reading through your Old Testament as we study through Hebrews. You see that the book of Hebrews, again, over and over, is declared. It's, it's built up on itself as we began in chapter 1 that Jesus is the better and ultimate revelation of God. Jesus is the better rest of God. Jesus is the ultimate and better sacrifice Jesus is the better mediator, high priest. And we see this morning again, the author of Hebrews comes back to this idea that it is in Jesus and him alone. He mediates this covenant, this new covenant, this terms of relationship between holy God, sinful man. How is it possible, brothers and sisters, for an infinitely holy God to ever be right with sinful mankind it is through Jesus and Jesus alone you see all of that in the book of Hebrews now something else jumped out to me as I was preparing this week and I think we've said this over and over but here's something else about the book of Hebrews if you haven't recognized this already the book of Hebrews forces us to go beyond just the surface level of what we think we understand See, the book of Hebrews this morning is even going to wrestle with the question, okay, if you're here and you're a believer, you would declare, yes, Jesus died for my sin. I understand that to a point, but the book of Hebrews is going to take us down a little bit deeper to help us wrestle with why was it absolutely necessary for Jesus that he had to die to redeem us little thought that hit me this week if, if we settle with a superficial understanding of the gospel and all that God is and all that he's done if you settle for a superficial understanding it's going to produce superficial worship shallow worship shallow obedience shallow joy so man we have taken a book on that forces us to go down a little bit deeper and engage our minds and our hearts why that we can worship this God as he is worthy to be worshiped it's the point of Hebrews so 15 again therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. I want you to listen to this next phrase. Since a death has occurred that redeems. That is a glorious statement in Hebrews. We're going to be talking about that this morning. Jesus is able to mediate a covenant between God and man. Why? Because there has been a death that redeems. His death. We'll talk about that this morning. That redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 16. For, and he's going to explain the nature of this. Why death is necessary a little bit. For example, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will 
takes effect only at death. Since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Author of Hebrews is going to compare this covenant relationship we have with God to a will. In other words, a promise is made kind of like a will is made. And the effects of that will, that promise, can only be experienced at what? Death. Use that as an illustration here. Keep going. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant... Looking back to redemptive history with Israel was inaugurated without blood. Stop right there. I thought he was talking about death. Now he's talking about blood. Well, I want you to see through this passage, you're going to see as in Hebrews a lot, he's going to use the idea of blood and the idea of death interchangeably. They're almost used synonymously. But understand, we're only able to sing about the power of the blood because Jesus has died. So the word blood can almost be read to say this sacrificial death of Jesus. It was necessary. This death of Jesus. Wise. Keep reading. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. Thinking back, looking back to Exodus, the old covenant. He, Moses, took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commands for you. The old covenant was just a bloody mess. Why? Talk about that. And in the same way, he, looking back to Moses, sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, verse 22, Under the law, almost everything was purified with blood or a sacrificial death. And without the shedding of blood, incredible statement here, there is no forgiveness of sin. Wow. Got to go a little below the surface here at Hebrews 9. There's a lot here. Here's the big truth we're going to try to chase all morning. This is it. Big truth. The cost of sin is death. The wage or the cost of sin throughout biblical history and the nature of God, the way things are, the cost of sin is death. Now, pause for one second. As I was reading this text and I was even preparing this morning, I I thought for just a minute, what must it be like if someone walks into one of our services or they pick up Hebrews chapter 9 and they start reading and they come across blood and death, nine times the word blood appears in this text and they have no idea what that's all about. They have no understanding of atonement and they think, man, is all y'all talk about death and blood? Why is so much hinging everything? On this death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is it necessary? The author of Hebrews is trying to pull those threads together for us a little bit this morning. And I want to try to pull those threads together this morning a little bit for us. Verse 15 here starts with this. A death has occurred that redeems. So he's talking about this death of Christ that was necessary to redeem. Then he bookends this section with verse 22 and he says, Without the shedding of blood, this sacrificial death of Christ, there can be no forgiveness 
of sins. Why? Why is it that way? So I want us to wrestle this morning is why is it necessary for Jesus to die? Why do we sing about his death? Why do we sing about the blood? Why is that absolutely necessary in order for God to redeem? Okay, that's where we're going. Hebrews 9. You guys good? Ready? Two of you. Okay, here we go. Now to do this, what I want to do is I want to try to connect some dots for you in the Old Testament. We're going to take a little trip through Genesis 1 and 2, and then we're going to come back to Hebrews 9 and let Hebrews 9 explain it, okay? So let's try to connect some dots. Why is death necessary? Why is the death of Christ necessary? Take your Bible, flip over to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I think you can find that one. Genesis 1, 1. Let's go back to the beginning. Try to connect some dots. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All the way back to the beginning, God creates everything. God creates every living thing, the plants, the animals, the the birds, the fish, the cows, the dinosaurs, the humans. God creates everything. Everything is there. Everything is perfect at the beginning. You know what's not there at the beginning? Cats. Cats did not come until after the fall. It's in the Bible. You can find it. Keep on going. In the beginning, God created everything. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. The unique high water mark of all creation, mankind. In the image of God, he created him Watch this, verse 27, male and female, he created them. That's a pretty important verse today, amen? That's for another study for another day. Pinnacle of creation are these image bearers, mankind. Verse 8 of chapter 2, keep going. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man who he had formed. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to keep it and to work it. You see fullness of life here. You see fullness of purpose. He has work, responsibility, stewardship. You you say, wait a minute, they had to work before the fall? Yeah, they had to work. Work didn't come after the fall, before the fall. Purposeful work, purposeful meaning, significance. Perfect communion with God. Perfect communion with one another. And if you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see a picture of life in all of its fullness. Unstained, untainted by sin. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. It's all yours, Adam. Verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely... What's the word? Die. It's all yours, Adam. Fullness of life, communion with me. But of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and there's a ton there we could talk about. We'll talk about all that later. The point is this. 
You eat of this tree, you step outside of my will, you operate in rebellion to me, there will be death. Some translations are the soul that sins will die. To die here has the basic idea of separation. In God there is life. In communion with him there is life. To step outside of God's will, his authority, his fellowship is a thing called sin. And the consequences of sin, the cost of sin is death. Separation from God, separation from life. The cost of sin is death. Keep reading. So God didn't stutter, right? God was clear. It's all yours except this. Chapter 3. Skip over verses 1 and 3. The serpent comes into the garden. The crafty, more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Verse 4. The serpent comes to Eve, the woman, and says, Uh... <clears throat> I know what God said. I know he said if you eat of this tree, you're going to die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Listen, the rejection of God's word is nothing new. The questioning of the veracity and the authority of God's words, nothing new. It's right here from the beginning. You're not going to die. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God. You will know good and evil. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was be, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. Oh, Eve, if only your husband had been there. Keep reading. And she also gave some to her husband... Who was with her. And he ate also. Where was Adam? Right there the whole time. Another Bible study. Another sermon for another day. Okay. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together. And they made themselves loin cloths verse 7 graphic picture here of your history and my history and the history of the world and why it is as it is sin enters the world the cost of sin is death Adam and Eve died spiritually at this moment. There was a separation between them and God. They fled from the presence of God when he came into the garden. Now Side note here, really quick, God said, if you eat of this, you will die. But Adam and Eve don't physically die. Now, they do later. Have you ever read this and wondered, well, did God not keep his promise here? Is God delaying? What is the basis for God to not take the life of Adam and Eve here as he said he was going to. Because did they sin? Yep. Did they deserve death? Yep. Why did he delay? Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to that in just a minute. 
Look how Adam and Eve respond to this. It's really, really important. This is the basis of everything you read in the Old Testament, understanding the nature of sin and death and blood and sacrifice. How does all this come together? Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked, and look what they do. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why'd they do that? The innocence of chapter 1 and 2 is gone. They know they have guilt. They know there's separation. So they go over into the corner of the Garden of Eden. And you know what they do? They sew together these loincloths of these fig leaves. And they attempt to cover their own sin. They attempt by their own human means to make some type of atonement. For the sin that has now entered the human race. They know it's there. They don't fully understand it. They know something is now broken. So within them they say we're going to take these fig leaves. We're going to cover our own sin. And here you have the beginning of every false system. Every false belief. Every act of self-righteousness that says. I know there's a sin problem. I know the cost of sin is death. But I can handle it myself. I'm going to try to cover my own sin. That's what Adam and Eve do here. Keep going. So they try to cover their own sin, but this is glorious. What is God's response? You see, man's response, what is God's? Look down at verse 21, Genesis 3. Now he goes through the conversation with Adam and Eve, the outcome of the sin, how the, the land is going to be cursed and all these different things as a result of sin. But then God in verse 21 comes back. This is one of the most important overlooked verses in all the Bible, verse 21 of chapter 3. And the Lord God... Made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. That is a glorious picture of the redemptive plan of God from the very beginning. See, in this one little verse, here's what you have you have a picture of something, something had to die. God takes an animal as a picture, must slay that animal. The blood is spilled. Then he takes the garments of that animal's skin and he makes atonement, if you will, for Adam and Eve. And he covers their sin. You have a picture that the cost of sin is death. The payment of sin's penalty is death. That's a principle throughout redemptive history. But at the same time, you see a promise woven right here in Genesis 3 that God clothes them with this garment of this animal. And did that animal take away their sin in any way? No, it was a picture, watch this, of a death that was going to occur far in the future that would atone for their sin. It's a picture. All the way back here in Genesis, you have a picture and you have a promise of the situation that death requires, sin requires death. Sin brings forth death. The penalty for that must be death. Something must die. God slays an animal, clothes them as a picture of a future death that was coming. See all that? Ton there. Okay, take a breath. Now continue on. You see those same ideas pulled through the Old Testament and the 
Levitical system and the sacrificial system that is inaugurated when Moses and the children of Israel like come out of Egypt and they're there in the land, they're headed to the promised land and God inaugurates what is called the Old Covenant. Not going to go all of the details, but he has the priests, he has the tabernacle and he has all these sacrificial systems. Why? Same reason. It's a picture Every sacrifice that was made is an ongoing picture throughout the Old Testament. Sin brings about death. The cost of sin is death. Redemption, atonement requires a death. And with every animal that was slain and killed was a picture of a death that's coming that will be the ultimate atoning death in Jesus Christ. Now, the author of Hebrews tries to pull all this back together for you so you can flip back to Hebrews chapter 9 now. He's going to refer back to this Old Testament sacrificial system and talk about that for just a second. So verse 18 of Hebrews 9, where we were, this picture that you have in the Old Testament system. He says, verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, sacrificial death. That's what we just talked about. Why? Because the cost of sin is death. Sin demands death. Atonement demands death. There must be a sacrificial must be a sacrificial death to atone. Verse 19, he goes on. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he, this is talking about Moses, sprinkled with blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law or the old covenant, almost everything is purified with blood. Stop right there. In the same way, God inaugurated a system, the old covenant, the sacrificial system, to keep the picture and to keep the promise that the consequence or the cost of sin is death. Sin brings forth death, and the price of that sin is death. That is a picture throughout the Old Testament. The cost of sin is death. The payment of the penalty is death. And then Hebrews takes that and the author of Hebrews tries to connect those dots and say every one of those deaths was insufficient to pay ultimately for the sin of man. It only pointed to a greater death, the death of Christ. So you come to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm just going to read this for you. And the author of Hebrews takes all this that we've said and he tries to explain it to help us. Because when we sing about the death of Christ, and when we read about the death of Christ, and we sing about the blood of Christ, and we read about the blood of uh, we read about it, we are to have a depth of understanding of the infinite price that has been paid and that is absolutely necessary to redeem you. And to redeem me. And that's what the author of Hebrews is attempting to do. To hold up the superiority and the glory and the greatness of Jesus as the all-sufficient one. Sin demands death. And only the death of Jesus is sufficient to atone for that sin. It's the point. So in Hebrews 10 verse 3, he says in light of all these Old Testament sacrifices... In light of all this blood that has been shed as a picture. Hebrews 10.3 says this. 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. If you were a Jew and you were an Israelite and you went to the tabernacle and you watched the priest and you watched them going about their priestly duty and you watched them slaying these animals, you could not get past the reality that sin brings forth death. It was a bloody mess to remind you that sin brings about death and the cost of that sin must be an atoning sacrifice. That was a drumbeat that went on for hundreds and hundreds of years in Israel. And now the writer of Hebrews comes back and he says these sacrifices, there was a reminder. The cost of sin. The deadliness of sin. Verse 4, he says, For... It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's just a reminder. It was just a picture of something greater. Then you come to Hebrews 10.1 and it says this promise. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. All of that was a picture, a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continued offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Hebrews says there is a worthy sacrifice coming. Every sacrifice made in the Old Testament, a picture, there's one coming. And then you get back to Hebrews chapter 9 where we've been and the author attempts to pull all these pieces together. Look in verse 11. But when Christ appeared. If you spend a lot of time in the Old Testament and you read all those pictures, you get to verse 11 and it's like shouting ground. But when Christ appeared, he's here. Verse 11. As a high priest of the good things that have come. It's not past tense anymore. Present tense verb. He's here. Then through the greater and more perfect tent. Not made with hands. That is none of this creation. Verse 12. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy place. How? Not by means of the blood of goats and calves. By means of his own blood. His own atoning worthy sacrificial death. And thus by that death he has secured eternal redemption for those who believe. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths over and over and over again to declare to you and me that the death of Jesus accomplishes what no other sacrifice under heaven has the power to accomplish. Christ and Christ alone. That's the point. And then with all of that, you come back to verse 15 where we started. So look with me. I'm going to read through it again. We'll give you two big ideas very quickly. They're going to flow out of this this morning. Verse 15. Therefore, he, Jesus, because he is the worthy sacrifice, because he has shed his blood, because he is the one who atones, he is able to be the mediator of a new covenant so that Those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. 
since a death has occurred that redeems. I love that statement. All those deaths in the past, no power to redeem. Death of Christ, the power to redeem. You mark in your Bible, you circle that. A death, the death of Christ, has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Big truth, a couple big ideas is this. The cost of sin is death. You see that throughout redemptive history. Big idea number one. The death of Jesus pays the sin debt for all who believe for all time. He says a death has occurred to redeem even those who were under the old covenant. The word redeem means to pay the price necessary. The word mediate means to stand in the middle, to to pull together a holy God and sinful man. Everything necessary for our forgiveness, our redemption, our ongoing sanctification, our ultimate glorification paid in the death of Christ. And not just ours, but everyone who looked to Christ, who looked to God even before the cross. You ever ask the question, how were Old Testament saints saved? We had a great conversation at our house last night reading this text with my little girls. And we asked the question, uh, do you think we'll see Adam and Eve in heaven? Ask that question. Wrestle with that question. How were Old Testament saints born again? How was God able to look upon Adam and Eve when they sinned in open rebellion and stay his justice, which would have been right, and show mercy? Not because he ever compromises or winks at sin, because he knew in his ultimate redemptive plan there would be a death in Christ that would atone for the sins of the world and those who believe. So every saint of the Old Testament who believed was saved by the the same blood you and I are saved, looking forward to the blood of Jesus. The death of Jesus pays the sin debt for all who believe for all time. Adam, Eve, Moses, Noah, David, every one of them. How are they born again? The death of Jesus. Just like you and me. Just like us who believe. I keep going, I'm going to give you a second big idea quickly, and then we're going to close. Cost of sin is death. The death of Jesus pays the sin debt for all who believe for all time. Here's your second and final big idea. The death of Jesus enables those who believe to experience the promises of God. To experience the promises of God. Verse 15. The death of Jesus unlocks these promises of God. Verse 15 again. Therefore he's the mediator. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The death of Christ was necessary. That's why he uses this will picture of one who makes a will. The outcome of that will can only happen upon the death of the one who made it. So the promises of God are set into action in your life and my life through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his son. Remember the new covenant that God made? Remember the promises that were wrapped up in that new covenant? We read it back in chapter 8. Very quickly, and we'll close with this. What are those promises that are ours made possible by the death of Christ? Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 11. I'm going to read it again. For there is a covenant... That I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Internal transformation. There's a promise. 
in Christ now. There's new life that is inside us, the life of Christ. I will be their God and they will be my people. The promise of a faithful community. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, those who believe, from the least to the greatest. This promise of intimate fellowship with God. How are all those promises possible? How do we experience this inheritance that is given by God? Verse 12 of chapter 8 tells us, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The only way you and I get to experience all the glorious promises of God that are ours is because a death has occurred that redeems. The death of Christ releases and activates the promises of God in our lives. Now I'm going to ask the team to come on up and begin to play, but I'm going to wrap it up with Hebrews 9 verse 22. Now this passage ends with this statement, and I want to end with this. Author of Hebrews says, and without the shedding of blood, without the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. Do we understand this morning the value and the importance and the necessity of the death of Christ? Do we understand that it is in that death that forgiveness is possible? Without the blood of Christ and Christ alone, without the death of Christ and Christ alone, according to Hebrews, there can be no forgiveness. There can be no redemption. There can be no new birth. Anyone here enjoy the blessings of the new birth of being in Christ? Only possible through His death and His resurrection, His life. No freedom from the burden of sin. No defeat of daily sin in our life. No future inheritance. No place in God's family. No resurrection life of Jesus experienced apart from the one and only atoning death of the Son of God. See, the life we experience as believers, this life that is ours in Christ is only possible because our Savior went through death And came out on the other side to give us life. The Apostle Paul says it this way and we'll close. Therefore as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Sin entered the world. So one act of righteousness. Death of Jesus. Leads to justification and life for all men. Cost of sin is death. But hallelujah, we have a Savior who has tasted death and defeated death and is very much alive today. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, thank you this morning for your truth. Thank you for these challenging truths from the book of Hebrews. Lord, take us from merely a superficial understanding of what the death of Christ means. Lord, and bring us to a life of worship. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.